Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. I'm joined today by Brian Lynn, Professor of History at Texas A&M University, a good friend here at the United States Army War College, and a former Harold K. Johnson visiting professor here at the War College. So, Brian, welcome home. Welcome back to the Army War College. Welcome to winter. How are you? Thanks. I'm, I'm great, Mike. This is, uh, it's always great to be back here and to have a chance to do some research over at AHAC and meet all my friends here. Yeah, that's part of what I want to talk to you about is the kind of process of doing research and the way that you um, think about a strategy for, for working here at the archives. So maybe we should begin by um, just outlining a little bit of where your career has gone, and then we can talk specifics about, about uh, your time here at, U- at AHEC and in, in the archives. So, so I first got to know you through your work on the Philippine War, um, 1899 to 1902 timeframe. So I think of your career, and tell me if you see it differently, as kind of having two phases. One is kind of looking at the Philippine War, and the other has really been a history of the U.S. Army itself. So I want to talk about both those phases. Um, so the first question I want to ask you is, having grown up in Hawaii, and I notice on your official bio it says the territory of Hawaii, uh, did that influence your thinking about looking west instead of east, looking towards the Philippines? Yeah, I think that was uh, a, certainly a big part. I wasn't that aware of how different that growing up in that culture was until Alan Millett at Ohio State uh, was giving a lecture on the Philippines, and I, you know, in the Philippine, what was then called the Philippine Insurrection, and I went up afterwards and said, this is really interesting. I'd like to, to learn more about this. And he said, well, you should. He said, because simply growing up in Hawaii, you've had probably more background than a graduate student could acquire in a year. You know that there's differences between the islands, between the cultures, the languages, and so forth. So the project really came about the way I think a lot of good projects come about. You hear something, you're interested in it, you start digging around, you find out there's not as much on it as you would like. Is, was this kind of your path? Yeah, and uh, I've always, I guess, been interested in what some people might think of the black holes and the areas of military history that haven't really been studied that much. And, of course, I was, I was really lucky because Alan had written a book about a general who had served in the Philippines— and he introduced me to Mac Kaufman at Wisconsin, who was this wonderful mentor. Wonderful guy. Yeah. And uh, Mac turned out to have done a whole lot of work in the 33rd Volunteer Infantry because that's what his bio- his subject for his uh, book, uh, Peyton March, had served mm-hmm. in. So Mac had collected all this material, and he told me it was here at Carlisle. And I came out on a, at that time, cold December straight out of Hawaii, and uh, that was pretty well what I did my master's uh, thesis on, the 33rd Infantry. And now you're back on a cold December. So so this went from um, a question that got sparked in your head. What did you go to graduate school thinking you were going to write on? Um, I thought I was probably going to do—well, I was recruited by Williamson Murray, who thought I was going to work on the Germans on the Eastern Front, and which was a non-starter for, as far as I was concerned. 
So I then went over to, uh, to Alan, and I really didn't have a clear idea. And he was very good at sort of thinking about what you might be interested in and giving you a topic, and then very rigorous in making you define it. And uh, when I finally had one, uh, there, uh, it just sort of took over. Yeah, I was not even one of Alan's students, but he did that to me. So I, I can imagine if you were one of his students. Uh, so you came here to Carlisle before all this stuff at Usahek was built, before this mm -hmm. beautiful facility that you're going to go spend time in today was built. This was in the old Upton Hall, I assume, mm -hmm. right? Where right. you kind of went in the back and almost kind of grabbed your own documents, right? Yeah. So yeah. what were, were, did you have a decent sense of what you were looking for, or was this really a kind of scouting mission to find out what was back there? Well, at the, at the time, the, the literature was all what we might call the dark legend or the anti-imperialist myth that American soldiers had gone into the Philippines and committed you know, terrible atrocities and viewed these people as subhuman and had been racism and murder and mayhem. And this was the nation, you know, Asia's first war of independence. And so what I was interested in was to trace a regiment and see how that had happened. Was it, did they get indoctrinated in their basic training? Did, was there an incident that occurred when they got to the Philippines? Were they recruited from particularly thuggish individuals? And of course, when I looked at them, I that none of this happened. I mean, these were not, they were taught, in fact, to be kind to the Philippines, Filipinos. They were recruited very well. They, uh, they fought very well. And that made me question that whole legend, and that led to expanding it into my dissertation, where instead of looking at a regiment, I looked at the island of Luzon and tried to find if there were uh, differences there. And, of course, there were, but the main differences were based on the resistance. So the first thing I, I, that strikes me from that is you had a hypothesis kind of coming in and then the evidence you were looking at made you change that hypothesis, yeah. which is, of course, part of the historical method that, that we all use. So that, to me, is interesting in and of itself. Um, and then the notion of using a kind of small case study, one regiment, to look at this kind of wider grand question about imperialism. And so you kind of already had that set in your head. You were going to use a small case to talk about some very, very big themes, which is what a dissertation is, of course, intended to do. Yeah, uh, Alan used to say it was you're not talking about the whole pie, you're just talking about a slice of it. But if you do a really good job describing that slice, you can probably make some guesses about the rest of the pie. Right. It was described to me one time, um, you have to put enough pieces in the jigsaw puzzle to know it's a zebra, which I also kind of liked. Uh, but also the other thing is the question I always ask students, assume somebody doesn't care about the 33rd Regiment in the Philippines, mm -hmm. why should they still read your dissertation? And the answer you already kind of had, that it's going to be speaking to this wider question about what imperialism is and what America's role in the world mm -hmm. was in this time period. So you, you knew that as a master's student already that this was kind of where this was going. Yeah, yeah. Certainly by the time I had got through my master's, I knew what I wanted to do. And, and to be fair, that was the direction that the cutting edge of the Philippine side of the war was going in. People like Glenn May and Norman Owen uh, we're talking about regional struggles now. These are scholars and, that were working in the Philippines? Yes. Okay. And so I, my primary contribution was to say that they had already defined the war as a regional war on the Filipino side. My contribution was to say, well, but the Americans reacted to it, and the Americans also fought a regional war. And I think that's if you're going to say there is a major contribution to that dissertation, it's to get 
guerrilla war back to the regional studies. And had you been to the Philippines before? No, I actually went out to the Philippines um, later. Uh, I don't, people don't really recognize this, but all the documents that were captured is, is really all that's left. And those were brought to the United States, and they were, uh, I guess they were, what was, at that time, they were sort of photographed, and they were put on microfilm, but very poor quality. And then they were shipped back to the Philippines right after the World War II, where they lay on the dock and got, you know, termites and ants and so forth. So, in fact, many Filipino scholars now kept running into them at the National Archives have to come to the United States to do that primary research because huh. it's not available. And then there was a later a big scandal because people were stealing documents from the Philippine archives as well. So it's a very unreliable place to do research. Right, so it's more to get a sense of the terrain, right. get a sense of the culture, get exactly. a sense of what this means in Philippine society. Right. And were there Philippine scholar, Filipino scholars working on this too that you could exchange ideas with? Or? Yeah, uh, uh, not a lot because it's politically controversial. There's a, we might call a national myth of the masses rising up united against the Americans. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the evidence I found, which so far hasn't been seriously challenged, is that there wasn't, okay, that the masses collaborated, the, certainly the upper classes collaborated, and then many of these same people that collaborated are now still running the Philippines. So, so you're really also working against two different sets of national narrative and national myth, mm -hmm. right? So, so I guess my question would be, as a master's student or early PhD student, did you realize all of the, way, all of the ways that this dissertation, all the facets of this that... Or did that kind of begin to occur to you as you were working on it? Well, I, I knew that pretty early because I got into a sort of fight with, a, a, you know, this academic fight in a journal with someone by the name of Stuart Miller who had alleged that the Americans, this was our first Vietnam and our first My Lai and, and so forth. And, and he had found all these accounts of atrocities and... I was, he had claimed that he had found them at, here at the Army War College at, at, um, in the archives. So I was amazed because I could, at that time they kept visitors' books. And I could see that he had only been there for a few hours. How he had managed to wander in and find all these atrocities that I had been spending weeks and weeks and weeks trying to locate. And of course, what I found is that, that they weren't there. He had fixed his notes, you know, taken a couple of accounts from one letter and stuck it together with another letter. What year was this about? Uh, this would be about 1983, 1984. Uh -huh. Wow. Okay. So, so I, you know, I, I, I was outraged, of course. Were, were you a PhD student then? Yeah. Okay, so you hadn't finished the dissertation No, yet. no, but I went down and, uh, and I got very outraged. I, you know, so, and I was at a conference with a lot of Philippine scholars and they said, well, you need to publish this because this is the book that everybody is citing. So I did this, and of course, as Alan pointed out, why did you think someone that you knew was cheating on their um, on their notes would act in a polite way? Yeah. And so, of course, he went yeah. ballistic and accused me of being an imperialist and so forth. But it was a it was an eye opener. That's a lot of fun as a PhD student. <laughs> exactly. It was an eye opener into the nastiness of academic yeah. politics yeah. and how, but. What I did get was a lot of support from Norman Owen and Glenn, the people that did the archives. And, it, and I think the whole purpose of that lesson, and one of the reasons I'm talking about it, is it 
did teach me the necessity of doing your homework. Of course. There's no substitute for spending those weeks and weeks and weeks in the archives and having the note and being able to pull this out and saying, this is what this document says. And I challenge, if you, if anyone in this audience will go and find that document, they will see that. And yes. he couldn't do that. And um, as a result, I think, you know, whether I won or not, uh, I think I certainly established my reputation. Yeah, it's certainly something that's hard, I think, for us to explain to non-specialists how important it is for our field that those notes are in there, those footnotes are there, those documents can be located, mm-hmm. how critically important that is for us. Yeah. And, I, and we were at a Society for Military History conference when I was a young academic. I think you were then president of Society for Military History. Maybe you were president-elect, and you berated me because I had written something for Rutledge. I'd written a textbook, and you actually crossed the the ballroom where the book exhibits were to tell me to quit writing books without footnotes. Um, and that has that has stuck in my head ever since. Um, yeah. And of course, you were right. This was just a textbook. It wasn't yeah. a, a primary research thing. But but your your point to me was this this won't be seen as a first tier yeah. work. And and you're a serious scholar. And there is a point where you know, Gresham's Law applies, where people do write several bad books, mm. and their good works are largely pushed aside. Yeah. And you've written a lot of, of very important works, and that's one of the ones that, you no, know, I, importantly, people don't look at. I, I've heard that your voice in my head, man, whenever I do a book contract with a trade press, it's in the contract that the footnotes will stay in and the bibliography will stay yeah. in. And, and I, I, I remember you... I don't remember where that was. Maybe Madison, Wisconsin, but you you came across a ballroom at me. So anyway, so I want to get off that. And, um, so you did you did three books in all on the Philippines, yeah. right? Uh, well, I did two books on the Philippine War, and then I did, I got really interested in the Pacific Army, mm-hmm. and so that was what happened after the war, from 1902 to Pearl Harbor, and because everyone knows, I mean, there's dozens of books about Pearl Harbor, and yeah. a lot of books about the Philippines in 1941, but there's nothing on the 40 years in between. And when did you write that book? Uh, that was, was that my second book. So that got came out, I think, at around 1985 or okay. 86. So I guess what I... So then very long after no, you've... No, 1995, sorry. Okay, a couple of years after you've published that, almost a decade or, or so, um, all of a sudden your work took on a kind of new meaning and new importance, which to me... I mean, you remember you and I having these conversations yeah. both here in Carlisle and, and elsewhere, um, when the United States all of a sudden found itself in another guerrilla war... And people were coming back to your book. How do we deal with this? We're, we're, we're uh-huh. in the midst of a Muslim environment that we don't really understand. Um, were you surprised that you were all of a sudden getting phone calls about this? Uh, yeah, I was. And in fact, I, was, I wasn't that happy about it because I'd moved on. Yeah. I mean, having come into the War College in 1999-2000 totally changed the direction of my research. And I wasn't interested in doing it in the Philippines anymore. I'd done that. I'd said everything I wanted to say. And now I'm getting, you know, requests to come and talk about it, to go back and do chapters on it. And essentially to adapt the research you had done to something that it was never intended exactly. to, to, to address. Right. And, and it was interesting to get picked up on both the right and the left as justifying whatever they were saying. Yeah. Um, I didn't really like it. Uh, I was uncomfortable with it. I was, I was a little peeved that, you know, having written this stuff and largely been not acknowledged by the United States Army. Um, but suddenly I was on, the, you know, the chief of staff's reading list, but not necessarily for the books I thought had right. the most to say to the Army. Right. 
because the army was trying to solve a problem that looked like the one you were addressing. Right. Yeah, and, which is fair enough. I mean, I you know I give them credit for going back to scholars and saying, right. okay, is there something here that we can do? Right. But can you talk a little bit about trying to go back to old work and say, okay, how how can I help people think through this problem based on what I've done? Right. And and we decided, my wife and I sat down because I and and we said we're we're going to do this for very specific reasons. We're going to do this if we f- sincerely believe that this institution or agency is is sort of committed to learning as opposed to getting verification. How many of these things were you getting? Give me a sense. Oh, I mean, how many how many emails, phone calls, outreach? I would get about f- four or five big, you know, for chapters or to 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 come and give a lecture um, and then four or five one, per per year. Uh-huh. Uh, and and they were, some of them were pretty exhausting. I mean, if you're going to write a book chapter, that yeah. is going to take up two months of your life. Yeah, it is, um, at least. And and so some of them were to pretty interesting places. Like I got to go to Australia and so forth. So that was a, that was a perk. And I got interested in sort of the broader area of counterinsurgency. Um, but as far as doing stuff on the Philippines, I really did feel I'd said everything I wanted to say. And I'm very skeptical and somewhat asking of people who are academics who have this opportunity to study all you know their lives Mm -hmm. and who just simply write the same book over and over and over and over again and i didn't want to be like one of those people right i remember peter carson telling me he was a very famous u.s uh, historian of the u.s navy uh told me he was just done he was switching to new zealand legal history and i remember just being I just I finally worked up the courage to say, why are you doing that? Like yeah. you're famous for this. Why are you going to that? And his answer was, I don't have any more questions in my head. They're yeah. they're they're done. I've got to I've got to find right. something else. Yeah, and I felt that was very frustrating. I think because I was working on another project that I got here at the War College, and in fact, everything I've done since I was here has been reflective of the questions that I came away from the War College. So this was your Harold K. Johnson professorship. For those right. listening in, this is a one-year or two-year visiting mm-hmm. professorship that Brian talked me, in part talked me, into taking. So thank you for that. Um, great... And you were here 1999-2000, so this is pre-9-11, obviously. Right. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about how that year switched your research, switched your thinking? Uh, yeah, that was, that was actually the year that the Philippine War came out, so the last book, and I remember giving it to the commandant, the then commandant, and him saying, well, yes, yes, but counterinsurgency is passe, you know, <laughs> you need to go on and work about firepower, and maybe in Korea and artillery, and, uh, and that was sort of the Army's reaction, you know, that the, they were moving on to transformation. And when I was here, I was, I, you know, came in, like most civilians do, thinking there's an Army way of thinking. And certainly from what we were hearing from the chief of staff and TRADOC, they were certainly saying that's true. This was when the big transformation initiative was going on. You know, the transformation initiative, we're moving away from the legacy of the Cold War towards the 21st century force. But when I got into the seminar, I was fascinated to see that that there was enormous amounts of disagreement on what I thought were basic things. Mm And at the most basic, there was a disagreement over what war was. And, and there was the, this was the Army War College, but discussion about war seemed to be going in all sorts of different directions. And so I was, you know, being pretty naive, I said, well, what are the precedents 
for how the army has thought about war. And of course, we didn't study any army intellectuals. You know, we studied Clausewitz and Mahan, but nothing about how the army had thought about war. And we did operations, how the army had fought war, but here in this, it was a peacetime army. So this is where the ideas for echo yeah. of battle come from. So, so this is an intellectual history of the U.S. Army that you're you're starting right. to think about, um, and then so it really was your year here that got you thinking. Okay, the the, the set of questions I'm really interested mm-hmm. in are how security professionals understand and think about war. Right. And then your answer in the book to to presage this to to forward this a little bit, and you, I'm going to ask you to talk about it a little bit was to essentially divide U.S. Army intellectuals into three groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I'm assuming much of the research for this, much of the ideas for this came from looking at the archives here yes, at AHEC? almost all. And so can you describe that process of what you were looking for and, and when you came up with this idea of kind of three large mm. groupings? Uh, originally, I was just interested in them in their thinking about war. And so what were they writing about war? And I, of course, I had to go back to pretty well what the U.S. Army is created, which is around the War of 1812. Before that, it's sort of amateur hour, but the War of 1812 creates a sort of professional, intellectual thinking about war. And then, you know, we had to think about, well, what was the security environment and so forth? And over time, reading books about war, uh, doctrine, and then once the schools begin, I found that where does, where does the army bring people together to talk about war? And the place is the schools. Mm-hmm. The schools and the general staff are really where that intellectual uh, library is. And so I read a great many student papers and student war plans and so forth. And what was driven in part was my experience in war college being in the seminar, having students say over and over again during the transformation, well, we got all this in the 1970s. This is no different than this. And so... That predisposed me maybe to, to start seeing patterns right. over time, that, over are time that were consistent. Yeah. And after a while, I began to see patterns that I'd seen in the seminar room also emerge in the literature. So we probably also sh- we shouldn't go too much further before we describe what the three groups yeah. are. So they're heroes. Well, they were, they were in the discussion, and you know, in a, there, there's people that think about war as essentially a human and endeavor in which martial virtues such as courage and discipline and individual genius are what determines it. And then there are people who look on war as a sort of engineering project in which there's rules and principles. And if you obey the principles, the results are going to be, you know, if not guaranteed victory, likely victory. And then there's a third group that look on war as sort of a management project, when you bring resources together with, you know, a, a game plan or doctrine and deploy those personnel and material resources and you achieve victory. And to me, what was interesting is that these groups were formed pretty early on and continue to interpret wars according to their, you know, prejudices and their, and so I guess the really thing that really upset people was the idea that they're going to interpret this war, regardless of how we interpret it, the same way. Mm -hmm. There are people that are going to come out and look, I can tell you, right now in Iraq and Afghanistan and say, well, the problem was 
we didn't have enough, you know, charismatic leaders. We're, you know, overly bloated, micromanagement, you know, and we should have turned it loose to the young captains. And you then can see this in World War One as well, yeah, right? You can see the same exact responses exactly. in 1918. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you'll, there's going to be people that say, well, you know, that the, the management was bad. You know, we just, we didn't have the right policies, and we, you know, did something, you know, too much for the, I mean, if you read the Afghanistan papers, you can, you can see these views mm-hmm. already. And then there's people who are right back at the Powell Doctrine. There were eight rules that governed us, and we violated five of them. So therefore, no wonder we lost, and we should never do it again. So I don't know if you remember this, but I was teaching a grad seminar at Southern Miss. I used your book. And the students asked, I can't remember who the individual was. Maybe it was Marshall, which of the three categories he belonged in. And I wasn't sure. So I called you, put you on speakerphone. And we had this wonderful discussion with students as we were going back and talking about the thesis to the book. So how did the Army respond to that book? I mean, I know, I think I know a little bit of how they responded. The Army took it as personality types, which I I thought was pretty clear in the introduction. Very few Army officers write about war. You know, so we're dealing with like one percent mm-hmm. of of the place, and and it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to conduct themselves. Marshall was a strong believer in the human spirit. I probably categorized him as a hero. If you read Infantry in Battle, it's you know that was when he was writing about war. But when asked to be a manager, you know he he succeeded brilliantly. But it, I was trying to say if you take away combat experience and so forth. You just get these people talking about war. What's the dialogue that's going on between them? And I think instead people went in and started saying, well, I'm a hero. I said, well, have you written anything about war? No. Well, then you're not even in this dialogue. Mm. You're, you've attached this to a personality type, which was it never intended to do. Um, and then is this about the time the ideas I, I, I remember seeing you when you first had the idea for Elvis's army and I remember yeah. seeing you know when people have an idea and they're excited about it there's you know we researchers we writers get a little twinkle yeah. in the eye because we've got it we know what mm-hmm. we're going to do and again I think it was a society for military history conference and I asked you what you were doing and you got that twinkle you said <laughs> I got it I already know what the cover of the book is going to look like and yeah. I've already got the title Elvis's army. So yeah. we're running, the, the sands are running out, but give us a quick how you came to that project. Um, well, you know, I grew up, I was born in 53, and so I grew up with the, the territory army. Yeah, in the territory. Yeah. And we had a big ROTC contingent, of course. And and so I was always interested in the drafty army. And I, so I think it's a fascinating force that's been ignored by its, the U.S. Army and, in fact, denigrated unfairly. Yeah, seen and, as a complete failure. And, right. Yeah. And then it's romanticized for all the wrong reasons um, by people that want to have military service. So I was just really interested in that. And then I juxtaposed that with the Army's effort to learn about atomic warfare. And ultimately, I ran into this contradiction between this very highly sophisticated, complicated form of warfare, high-tech, high, you know, high-skill and the workforce, which was unmotivated, unskilled, and transient. And that, to me, was just this fascinating thing. And I have to tell you, that, I thought, had a lot of things to tell the current army. Yeah, of course. Which is charging on without really taking much interest in, do they have the MOSs to be able to do these high-tech weapons? Yeah. Are they, are they being able to retain their junior officers? All the things that plagued that army are issues that the current service uh, faces, 
And yet I find very little interest in that. Yeah, you're right. It's too easy to close the door behind you and say, exactly. we did that. We don't have to think about right. this anymore, right. as they did with counterinsurgency. Right. And, and I sort of think our job as historians here at the Army War College is in part to remind people that what you thought was old may become new again. You yeah. can't just bury this. And I think in a lot of ways, our job, as opposed to the official U.S. Army historians, is to move the dialogue out of the Pentagon yeah. and into the field. Yeah. Um, because so much of the official history is written at the Pentagon, high staff, civil military. And people sort of forget um, that there's an army out there and that there's there's enlisted people right. and junior really talented officers. people exactly. thinking deeply about and this. And unfortunately, historians are the ones that are writing about that. Beth Bailey, Jennifer right. Keene, yourself, um, and not... The Army's own history program. So as the sand is coming out of the hourglass, you're going to leave here. You're going to go over to AHEC again, where I'm sure they'll do the way for you as you walk in. Uh, what are you researching today? What, do, what are the documents you're looking at? I'm going to be looking at the post-war, post-Vietnam War Army, because I'm writing a book on the post-war experience. And again, it's finding the similarities in those 10 years after every war, from the War of 1812 to the war after Vietnam. So this is the John Candy, Bill Murray, Stripes Army that you're going to write about now. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 Okay. The last couple of questions I want to ask you as we our time wraps up. Um, what will you be reading over the break? Fiction, nonfiction? What's on your what's on your um, Well, list? fiction is what I, I read when I'm to justify going to the gym. So, <laughs> um, and we'll be... Uh, so wait, if you do enough laps, you get to read fiction? Or how does this work? <laughs> I can't... Well, I, I, I can't read underwater, but if I ever go on the ellipticals, I'll be reading. I, I tend to read mysteries uh, and police procedurals because I think that's a lot like being a historian. So I, I, every historian, I think, reads mysteries when they get a chance, Al almost all of them. And I don't know really why that is. Because but of the it, process. It's what we read. It's a process, the logic, the, the, and the belief that good is ultimately going to triumph. Yeah, I don't have that belief anymore. I'm not so sure I have that from my study of history anymore. Um, and maybe last That's question. That's why we read mysteries. Yeah, exactly. We were, we're, maybe we're looking for a resolution that we don't often find in yeah, our own work. There's a clear-cut good. good guy and bad guy, and somebody comes along and solves that, that yeah. dilemma for us. Yeah. Um, whereas in history, it's always so difficult because there's no easy, clear-cut yeah. good guys, and there are very right. few easy, right. clear-cut. And you think there's a solution, and then the next guy comes in and changes it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So last thing I want to ask you, you uh, obviously teach uh, a lot of writing to undergraduates and to grad students. You were the dissertation advisor of, of our good friend, Mark Rotlution. Um, how do you teach writing? What advice do you give to young writers when they come to you? Um, or well, old writers? Yeah, we're working on, on, I think, the basics. You know, what's your thesis? Does, uh, yeah, we're talking about being a detective. There's a procedure to this that you have to follow. Does your paragraph topic actually cover what the paragraph's mm -hmm. going to discuss. And that has, is very difficult. We're in a LinkedIn generation that, that feels that they ha can get information anywhere, but they're very sloppy writers, and they're not used to following an idea through a whole paragraph. So we spend a lot of time working on, on the foundations and the basics. I'd like to say it's all brilliant, just like, a, you know, it was a Dan Brown mystery. You just go find the document. Yeah. But most of it is just... It's pretty hard work. I tell them, it's just procedural stuff. Yeah, I've been trying to... My daughter's a sophomore in college now. I'm trying to, to model this for her, that it's just a lot of hard work, and it's yeah. a lot of going back and saying, I wrote this, but it's garbage. Yeah. And we, we live on our revisions. Yeah. And the best of us, you know, are like pitchers. We work on the angles. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's the, a good way to think about it. The, yeah. 
the brilliant stuff. Anyone can throw 100 miles an hour, but, the, you know, really, we live on the angles. <laughs> the sand's out of the hourglass. I don't want to keep you from your research time at AHEC. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. This has been great. Talk to you soon. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.